0: Everyone, and welcome back to Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that wouldn't hurt a fly, not a single fly. I, of course, am your host, Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and I'm here once again to talk about all the movies I watched this week in my October 31 for 31 marathon, where I watch one horror movie a day. For the entire month of October. This week, I went all the way back from movies released in the 1930s to movies released this very week, including I've got some 90s folk horror in there, uh, a a crazy film from James Wan from last year, and I've also got a review of Halloween Ends that took me three days to write and rewrite ...and rewrite... Oh, it, ...you'll see. What a week! So, as you probably know, I am in the middle of trying to watch all of these movies... ...according to my set of self-imposed guidelines or rules. And these rules are... ...I can watch no film that I've seen in the last five years. Uh, number two, I, I have to have at least three movies... In another language besides English. So foreign films. Subtitles. I have to have at least two films. Two. From every decade. From the pre-1940s to present. So in other words, 40s and before. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Aughts, teens, and 20s. Uh, and then I've got to have multiple films from each franchise. Counting as one film. So if I watch uh, The Exorcist. One, two, three, four etc. That all counts as only one film. So i got to be careful about multiple movies in a franchise. Remakes, of course, don't count. I can watch a remake of a film or a reboot or whatever. It doesn't count as the same thing. It has to be sequential. counts as one. Uh, they all obviously have to be defendable as being horror movies. I've had to defend a couple of this year so far and say, oh, they're, they might be arguably horror movies. I've got to argue that they're horror movies. And then finally, I usually have like a a bonus thing every year, like a special featured type of horror film. This year, it's folk horror. Folk horror, really interesting subgenre that's become somewhat codified in the last 10 years. There's been a big resurgence of folk horror films recently. So I've been watching a lot of older folk horror films and just kind of wrapping my head around where the subgenre came from, what it really means, and a lot of the tropes and kind of styles that we see in folk horror films. So I've got to have one folk horror film from every one of my decades. That's nine folk horror films in total, of my total of 31 films. Nine will have to be folk horror films. Uh, Doing pretty good so far, I I think. I guess we'll find out in the last week, but uh, so far... On the show, I've talked about Witchfinder General from 1968. Vincent Price, one of the very first like, really noticed folk horror films. Certainly one of the titans of British folk horror, Witchfinder General. Uh, And I thought a very good movie, too. I also watched Eyes of Fire from 1983, an American folk horror film set in the uh, 1700s, like right around revolutionary times, America. Uh, I also watched Terrified or Atarados, uh, from 2017, which was awesome. I saw God Told Me To, from 1976. Barbarian, still, I believe, playing in some theaters from this year, 2022. Go see it knowing nothing, and you might like it. Uh, I was not a fan of how it just kind of at the end, but I thought it was overall a pretty solid, solid film. I saw The Undying Monster from back in 1942, an early werewolf film. And, of course, I saw the remake of Hellraiser from this year, currently streaming on Hulu. It is, I thought, excellent. An excellent, uh, excellent update of the franchise. Not as much of, like, the weird, kinky sex shit from the first one, which is too bad. But that's, like, one of the big criticisms you could have of it. Everything else is just spectacular. Uh, And the new Pinhead, she is wonderful. Fantastic update of that character. Uh, The eighth movie I watched was a really cool uh, Yugoslavian vampire movie called Leptirica, also a folk horror film from 1973. I watched The Beach House from 2019. Interesting little body horror film there. I watched Phil Tippett's Mad God, currently streaming on Shudder. An absolutely bonkers insane must-see film from 2021. I watched Hell House LLC just because I had to. Everyone always talks about it. Uh, that's from 2015. Found footage. Uh, haunted house. Horror film of sorts. Uh, worth a look if you like found found footage. If you don't like found footage like I don't, meh, it's meh. I watched City of the Dead a very early Christopher Lee film from 1960. I watched Snake Girl and the Silver-Haired Witch, a very odd Japanese film from 1968. And finally, I watched Saint Maud, a fantastic little slow-burn, subtle, psychological horror movie from 2019, which I thought was excellent as well. So after all of that i still have a lot of decades i have to cover over half my folk horror films i've still got to watch as well so i've got my work cut out for me this week uh but before i get into the movies i watched this week please you know what's coming next do me a favor follow me on twitter at skinless wonder and of course on instagram as sir ian dangerous and uh, also please check out the Tiki Creeps at tikicreeps.com. They're the band that played that opening track uh, for the show. They have been generous enough to lend me their music. They're awesome guys and their band kicks ass if you like a little bit of that uh, that Tiki 50s haunted uh psychobilly vibe to your Halloween like I do. They're awesome. Uh, also please check out 414 Beg on Instagram. He does some really awesome creepy haunted beautiful music. He of course is in charge of my sound design on the show. He's on Instagram. That's number four one four B E G on Instagram. And so uh, please hit me up uh, on Twitter, Sir Ian Dangerous. Uh, excuse me, uh, Instagram Sir Sir Ian Dangerous. Twitter Skinless Wonder. Hit me up. Let me know what you think of my reviews. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've got some this week that might be a little a little spicy I had to edit myself a bit and I, I, I think I still may say things that will get me in trouble We'll, we'll see I suppose I check it out let me know what you think of course like the show share the show subscribe to it review it all those good social media things that help me and help the show out tell other people bring them into the fold the horror palooza fold bring them on it tell all your horror living friends come hang out with me I promise I don't bite unless asked so on with the show let's talk about what i watched this week starting with all the way back 1939 son of frankenstein which i have on a really awesome box set of universal horror movies collecting pretty much every one of their franchises all the movies from the franchises it's an awesome set if you can find it um And here's the thing, I love me some goddamn Frankenstein, or to be more specific, I love me some Frankenstein's monster, a distinction made very clear by a frustrated Basil Rathbone quite early in the runtime of Son of Frankenstein, so Rathbone here in this movie plays Wolf Frankenstein, the son of Henry Frankenstein from the first, or Heinrich Frankenstein from the first two films. And he comes back uh, to his ancestral castle, much to the chagrin of the local villagers, uh, and discovers that the monster is actually still alive. Uh, he's dormant, and he's cared for by a creepy, twisted man named Igor, played by Bella Lugosi. So this is, as I said, the, very, the third film in the old Universal Frankenstein franchise, and it was actually the last time Boris Karloff would play the monster on film. Uh, he did it, I think, once later on TV. So Karloff is and always will be my version of the monster. He's just got the right amount of natural sadness in his face and his demeanor, as opposed to like a bunch of the other famous actors who've played the role, like uh, like Glenn Strange, Lon Chaney Jr., uh, Mike Lane, Peter Peter Boyle. Uh, Robert De Niro, uh, <laughs> Bo Svensson, uh, Johnny Lee Miller, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Richard Liberty, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, David Carradine. Okay, I'm joking about the last few, but the, the point is Karloff's my guy. Um, I, I actually had to be talked down from the ledge earlier this year from dropping hundreds of dollars on a life-size bust of karloff's monster and i'm still not sure it was the right call to not do it i i love me some karloff frankenstein's monster but all of that to say that i was i was drooling this year to watch son of frankenstein a movie that i have not watched in decades since i was a child so my memory of it was was pretty dim i was hungry for some of that frankenstein monster action and i remember liking him in this but i I didn't remember a whole lot more. I, I recalled um, the creepy old hunchback, but uh, but I forgot, or I didn't piece together, I guess, that he was played by Bella Frickin Lugosi, who I've also come to revere a, as I've matured and 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 grew in my horror obsession. Uh, but I, I remembered that um, in the movie that Doctor Frankenstein, Wolf Frankenstein, Basil Rathbone, I remember him being very twitchy and uptight, but. I didn't really, at the time, put together that it was Sherlock Holmes himself, Basil frickin' Rathbone, chewing his scenery like he was getting paid by the facial tick. Um, I'd also forgotten that the monster here reverted, or perhaps uh, devolved is a better word, into a stumbling, sadistic killer and a kidnapper. I, I remembered that he was under the control of Igor, but not really that it was like a mutual friendship. Or one where the monster was uh, too dumb to see the bigger picture but was smart enough to, for instance, cover up his crimes and he attacks furtively and maliciously. It's not the monster, like the dumb, shambling monster that we think of or kind of like love, Lorn. He's just a beast in this. Uh, I definitely remembered the inspector, the local village, village policeman with the, uh, the wooden arm That was so brilliantly skewered in young Frankenstein and just how much he overacts with that damn prop. But man, seeing it with with fresh eyes is is just it's just breathtaking. In fact, the the wild swings in characterization where both he and Rathbone go from just this well played, subtle wordplay to heaving, flailing melodrama are it's impossible to truly dislike as they are actually quite entertaining in a car wreck kind of way. Uh, so, I mean, thank goodness Bella Lugosi is here, giving just an intense and vicious performance, which, while, while very, it's very big like the rest of the movie, it's also note-perfect and just chilling. Um, I, I forgot that Igor has this disgustingly distended broken neck from when the villagers had hanged him, and then they declared him legally dead and it's never really settled if he's actually also a hunchback or if his deformity also springs from his trauma of being freaking hung uh it, it's clear that he's incredibly strong uh, physically and it's it's actually a pity his character is somewhat tossed aside at the end but uh but given the fact that Lugosi in real life was in a tailspin career-wise at this point, and and he'd been hired for the movie initially for Peanuts for a a character that wasn't even really in the script. It's a miracle that he got the scenes that he did. And besides, they technically do the character and Lugosi himself some justice by bringing him back in the next movie, Ghost of Frankenstein, and putting his brain in the monster's body. So they kind of, I guess, realized what they had here. So And now here's the thing. Son of Frankenstein director Roland Lee kept adding more and more Igor scenes as they filmed. The character never was in the very original script, but uh, Lee had the writer, Willis Cooper, rewriting the movie as it was being filmed, with many scenes being written on the day of. And as a result, Lugosi kept getting more and more scenes and screen time. And as a result... Lee forced the studio to keep Lugosi around longer and pay him more, which was a favor that Lugosi would always remember and be grateful to Lee for. And I'm grateful too. Lugosi is the best part of this movie. He's this sneering, raspy-voiced creature with nothing but revenge on his mind for the men who hanged him. It's a much more compelling story than the hapless, ridiculous Wolf Frankenstein, who spends most of the, the son of Frankenstein, who spends most of the movie making bad decision after bad decision and then being unconvincingly dishonest or getting Bradley mad about people calling him out on it. Uh, and actually later, Lugosi said this was one of his favorite screen characterizations, and you can see why. His venom and sincerity is palpable, and he's about as far away from the suave, debonair sophisticated roles like dracula and murder legendra that he's known for as you could possibly get so um and it's you know on another note it's, it's actually kind of funny i had forgotten that the character of igor started out like this we have the the classic image of the bug-eyed lisping hunchback as igor which is actually an amalgamation of several different characters In the very first Frankenstein film, we have Don Fry's hunchback assistant to Dr. Frankenstein. But he's not a grave robber, per se. He doesn't have a strange manner of speaking. And his name is actually not Igor. It's Fritz. Uh, And then you have, in this movie, Lugosi's the twisted neck, gravel-voiced. He's a blacksmith and grave robber. uh, And it's Igor with a Y. Who He's around while Frankenstein resurrects the creature, but he's hardly an assistant. Uh, and then in House of Frankenstein, a couple movies later, you have a hunchbacked lab assistant named Daniel, which is an awesome character played by J. Carol Nysh. And this is actually one of the closer versions to what we kind of conceptualize or think of today. Uh, and of course, by the time we get to Hammer Horrors Revenge of Frankenstein, we have Carl, who is a hunchbacked lab assistant who ends up having his brain placed into the monster as well. So just all the Frankenstein films mashed together. <laughs> Into one character and then we have Marty Feldman who is bug-eyed and hunchbacked in young Frankenstein Um, Why for some reason Peter Lorre's voice is always associated with Igor in my mind And in fact in many cultural depictions of Igor is it's beyond me But maybe it's because Lorre played a hunchback in the white devil And the idea of Peter Lorre as a hunchback, saying, yes, master, let me find your brain, master. Yeah, me, oh, it just, it stuck. Uh, Ironically, Lorre was actually approached to play Wolf Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, in Son of Frankenstein, but he had contract conflicts, allegedly, or he may have found a way to turn it down. But he was supposed to do it. He was supposed to play it, didn't do it. Uh, but I digress. Son of Frankenstein is what I'm supposed to be talking about. And it is a lovely little horror film. It's got dark and stormy nights, the kind that they do not make anymore. Well, they they do, but not like the, the cast dark, creepy, looming old castle and the the lovely touch of having the interiors apparently designed by Dr. Caligari. Uh, I mean, in all seriousness, the German expressionist styling of the lighting and the interiors of Castle Frankenstein are absolutely wondrous. Check out how they shoot light through the heat over a fire to create this gorgeous, rippling shadow behind two of the characters as a a way to create atmosphere without even having to show us a fireplace. Uh, And sometimes when the the room is shot a little bit less carefully, they find a bad angle. The room looks bare and very stage-like, but in some of these closer shots, the, the throne shadows are just oppressive. They're stark and they're evocative. And it's a beautiful setting for what is otherwise a fairly straightforward affair. I can't say this is ever going to be my favorite Frankenstein film just because the, it's, it's, the monsters kinda meh, But it's certainly not a bad film. I, I just I couldn't get all the way into Basil Rathbone's characterization of Wolf Frankenstein as much as I love. Good old Basil, in, and also his kid in this movie is just obnoxiously too precious. Very obviously from like Kentucky or the Midwest, his kid for some reason he's got this British accent. Basil, has this beautiful British accent, and the kid's sad like he from Kentucky. I can't believe the things they're making me do with this monster, Dad. Um, his wife and Butler are just token space fillers. Eh, and and as, as I said, the monster is just—it's not my monster in this film despite being played by karloff uh who's the man himself i mean i i miss the yearning for acceptance and 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 love of bride and the the tragic doomed arc of the original um james Whale's subtle metaphors they're just missed here Uh, and the monster is less interesting for it he still he still looks great Jack Pierce is returning to do the honors for the makeup and even though by this point Karloff hated the makeup he still looks the best in it of anybody but there's there's definitely a soul missing in this film and it's limp end and uneven plot doesn't really do anything to save it it's just not as good as the first two but it's certainly better in production value acting and originality than the later ones and of course the real meat on the bone is surprisingly for once, not the Karloff monster that I came to this film for, but the much more human monster played by Mr. Bella Lugosi. So, Son of Frankenstein, very solid. Not what I was looking for, but I still I found something else in it that I really enjoyed this year very much. The next movie I watched was Lake of the Dead from 1958. Uh, you can catch it on Shudder right now. Uh, and in in describing folk horror, one of the terms that comes up a lot is psychogeology, which is a concept that describes the land or specific aspects or places in nature that affect people emotionally in a manner where the past pushes its psyche onto the present. Uh, this could be secondary to a physical presence, but Lake of the Dead, which is a Norwegian horror film and m- murder mystery, really, is a movie that is, is expressly about psychogeography, and it might be the most specific example of it I've I've ever seen. Uh, it's based on a 1942 book, and the movie has gained more and more of a reputation over the years. And in 1998, it was voted the fourth best film in Norwegian history. So Lake of the Dead follows a group of middle-aged friends as they go to visit one of their other friends at a creepy old cabin in the woods. And they are, unsurprisingly a clearly delineated bunch. There's the stern scholarly psychologist, Kai Buja. There's the engaged couple, Harold and Lillian. There's the Frady cat crime writer, Bernard, and his no-nonsense wife, Sonia. And, of course, there's the complete asshole and perennial devil's advocate-taker, Gabriel Mork. So they're all off to see Lillian's brother, Bjorn, because in a Norwegian film, I think it's a, a, a law that you have to have someone named Bjorn. Uh, but when they get to the cabin, Bjorn is missing, his dog is dead, and there's a local cop that tells him that there's a legend about the cabin in the lake nearby, which involves a curse, murder, and a peg-legged ghost. Now, in modern movies, you'd have a pretty good idea where this would be going at this point. We, at this point. We've, all, we've all seen a million Cabin in the Woods movies, including... There's, the, there's a fucking movie called Cabin in the Woods, but in this instance, we're actually not prepared for where this movie goes. I think it wasn't until Evil Dead that they really codified the, the modern Cabin in the Woods uh, concept. Or maybe maybe Friday the 13th. But it's, it's, this is far before that. Um, this is much more concerned with the way the cabin and the lake makes our characters feel. And as they try to figure out how it made Bjorn feel, they get drawn into the psychogeography of the isolated countryside that they're now surrounded by. And one thing the film does exquisitely well is depict how some people's thoughts can affect others' thoughts. Uh, Bouja reads aloud some disturbing passages from Bjorn's discovered diary, and Bernard reacts as though the thoughts are the scariest ghost story he's ever heard. Uh, like they're invading his brain, like the idea of one man descending into madness is enough to make another man afraid for his own sanity, which, as we find, is actually a theme. It's kind of the point. The lake itself and its morbid history have started to worm their way into Bjorn's mind and into the mind of some of his friends as the movie goes on, And, and, and Bjorn's loss of personal identity and his fall into delusion could be taken as paranormal or frighteningly normal and expected. And the film makes sure we know that both could be true. Uh, Lake of the Dead is also beautifully shot and it, it needs to be. The scenes of the lake have to evoke both wonder and dread as the lake itself, as you would expect in such a film, is a character of its own. And one of the more, Subtle but still I found chilling scenes in the film is near the end when one of the more innocent and happy-go-lucky characters is walking back from getting water from a stream and he starts to gaze into the lake and he starts being drawn into it like staring into the abyss of the human soul. You can see his face darken as he understands finally what has drawn people to this seemingly innocuous body of water and led some of them to plunge in never to surface again. The lake serves as a threat and also a metaphor for a space that seems peaceful and idyllic on the surface, but is really cold and black and lonely and impossibly deep underneath. And the ghost that haunts it, whether it is real or not, is the lake's agent of doom. Uh, More of a a physical, I guess, or paranormal manifestation, uh, drawing people to the lake and pulling them down into it, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, maybe it's happening, maybe it's not we never really know and while a lot of the film's psychological premises come off by the end as a a bit of hogwash One, one safety it throws itself is the conflicting ideologies and beliefs of the various friends. You have a skeptic you have a believer, you have a scientist, you have a critic and you have a naive and by the end of the film it's pointed out that several of them might be simultaneously right there may be a ghost, there may not be a ghost. It may be metaphorical, it may be literal, maybe physical, psychological, it might just be a figment of everyone's imagination, or it might be something else entirely. But one thing the film is certain about is that feelings have power and ideas have power. And as a result, the film empowers the cabin, the woods, the lake. It all makes us feel fear and foreboding and a sense of the past that existed there whether a literal ghost or not, having agency in the present to affect the emotions and psychologies of the people who come near it. Uh, And early on in the film, there's a character that finds a copy of August Strindberg's famous partially fictional autobiography and polemic on himself, Inferno, in which Strindberg, who was a brilliant author, playwright, and essayist, uh, known as a, a towering figure in Swedish literature and culture, he basically loses his damn mind it's it's a book that rejects in many ways his previous assumptions about himself and the world that he had carried for most of his life it chronicles his descent into mysticism religious fervor paranoia narcissism and delusion and inferno is particularly intriguing because it is a fascinating portrait of a mind on overload experiencing neuroses so violent that he upends his whole life and belief system while still maintaining enough clarity to write about it in a way that is obviously intentionally dramatized and self-aware. It's the portrait of a brilliant man losing his fucking mind. And it's also a man creating his own personal hell, although he contends that the hell he's experiencing is not of his own making, but of the devils that trouble him. Uh, And this is a perfect analog some of the psychological concepts explored here in *Lake of the Dead*, and anyone from that part of the world who saw that book being picked up in this film would have probably chuckled knowingly and nodded. Uh, but where the, where, the, where the film shines most brightly is how it brings nature into the dissolution of human personality, and that's what makes this this such a great folk horror film. Specifically, the land is oppressive. The emotions of the past violence lingers on in the still waters of the lake. It chills us and it chills the characters in this film just to look at it and contemplate. And the possibility of losing your mind is just so often an abstract, ungraspable concept. It's something that you can you can say that you understand, but to, to understand, to really understand it, might make us mad and, and might make us fall in too. And that's I think the greatest achievement of Lake of the Dead, which is it is stilted and it's awkward sometimes. And and it's a bit stiff and it's a bit of an eye-roller of an ending, but my God, it does such a great job of illustrating the cold, relentless stare of an icy mountain lake where you just you know bad things have happened and where you know if one person was made mad by something out there in the dark, then you might lose your mind as well. So on a bit of a lighter note, the next movie I watched was Head of the Family from 19. 19- 96, also on Shudder Is it on Shudder right now? It is on Shudder right now, yeah. Uh it was a matter of time before a movie like Head of the Family snuck into this marathon. Uh you know the kind produced by Full Moon Features or Troma with questionable special effects, zero budget, uh loony plot, dumb humor, full-on schlock credentials, you know, uh Thanks Killing, for example, Ginger Dead Man, Killer Bong, etc. All of those grade Z movies made by varying degrees of quote unquote talent with also wildly varying degrees of entertainment value. Uh some are absolute trash that make you question if it would be better if celluloid had never been invented and if there was some way to speed up the meteor that will hopefully one day kill us all. Some of them on the other, on the other hand, are are actually goddamn genius. You do find some diamonds in the rough that are completely bonkers. They're filled with creative kills or scenarios, a good bunch of self-aware laughs. And they overcome their shortcomings with either their chaotic energy or their sheer will to be something so outlandish that you can't help but enjoy them. Movies like um, Class of Nuke Them High. Uh, Nuke Them. Class of Nuke Um High. Come on. Killer Clowns from Outer Space, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, or basically anything Frank Henenlotter has ever done. And then somewhere in the limbo in between, there's Head of the Family. And the basic premise is it's pretty self-evident. There's a guy with a huge damn head. He's basically just a head who controls the various members of his mutant family, and he uses them to capture passersby for his brain experiments, which, from what I can tell, basically just involve him poking holes in their foreheads and making them act like varying shades of what some people assume mental injuries look like. Uh, And then some low-grade wannabe criminals from the nearby Podunk town Decide to try to mess with him and force him to do their bidding, and things get. Well, things just kind of get. And what's weird about this film is that it's strangely not utterly terrible. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's absolute trash, but it's bizarrely not as trash as it could be. The acting is garbage, but yet the line readings aren't horrible. And often they're even quite well played, which is. Beyond a miracle, considering the overcooked, overwordy gobbledygook they're forced to say by screenwriter Neil Marshall Steves, here credited as Benjamin Carr, who is also responsible for several other schlockfests, including some Puppet Master sequels. Uh, He's also one of the writers credited with 13 Ghosts, which might explain a lot about that film. Um, This movie has so much dialogue, often far more than it needs in any given scene to establish what's happening or to play out a joke and a lot of the moments that could be funny get dragged out to death uh the special effects are as expected horrible but then again some of the shots of jw para as the oversized head are actually shot fairly well to create the illusion of his relative size using foreshortening tricks that have existed since film began but they got famous again on the lord of the rings films so the plot itself of course, is nothing special, but I genuinely thought it was a creative idea to not just have some sex and drug crazed teens crash into a strange old house in the swamp and find a family of mutants, but instead to have a local thug and a small-time hustler have a spat that leads to the latter having a battle of criminal wits with a giant headman. That's actually kind of original, and if the characterizations and plot twists are flat and uninvolving, then it's just it's too bad that's letting down a decent premise. And having a movie of this sort be more of a crime drama than a teenage slasher is a good idea. It's just not one this movie was capable of pulling off. Because Head of the Family isn't really interested in being too serious. It knows exactly what it is, which is why for the horny dudes in the audience who can't be bothered to stick with the plot, it brought in the uh, talents of adult film star Alexandria Quinn, who plays the sexy mutant, which you know is a thing, and Jacqueline Lovell, who plays the lead girl and love interest of well, everyone, who also went by the name Sarah St. James back in the 90s when she was an exotic model with credits in Playboy, Penthouse, and several straight to video nudie fests like this. Lovell is actually surprisingly good. She She has an eager sass ...to her line readings that often is really charming and endearing. And I'm not saying that because she spends half the movie in various states of undress. She's actually pretty good. And she's even able to get her lines out while having energetic sex with the other main character... ...which is necessary because one thing this movie loves is lots and lots of awkward lines and exposition in a sex scene. Uh, She truly does feel like she's having a lot of fun playing this role... Regardless of the scenario, and that actually comes through and makes the rest of this movie a bit less of a chore because you have fun with her. Uh, and if there's one thing, the head of the family needs to do more of, it's more. I mean, well, except nudity; it has it has plenty of that thanks to Miss Lovell, but it needs more energy, and that manic, wild energy that you have in like Toxic Avenger and Frankenhooker. It doesn't. It doesn't have that. It needs more insanity, more sick will to go to places that make us jump and laugh like Reanimator or or Santa's Sleigh. It, it feels like a lot of the potential is there, and it has a cast that is game and a premise that is ripe for all kinds of creative madness. It just it gets bogged down in talking and trying to be smart when clearly it just is not. It's the case of a bad movie that is too good to be truly awful in the best or worst way, but is nowhere near good enough to be an entertaining time at the schlock cinema either. Uh, better off just go watch Basket Case 2 instead of watching Head of the Family. Up next, the 18th film of the marathon this year. We have 2021's Malignant, which you can currently see on HBO Plus or Extra or whatever HBO streaming service is out there right now. It's It's chaotic with them right now. Uh, I also got it on Blu-ray because I'm insane. And speaking of insanity, <laughs> James Wan is a certified madman. I mean, l- look, I, not to brag, I figured out the twist to this movie that he directed and came up with a story for, Malignant. About a third of the way through its runtime, which has less to do with me being some kind of screenplay savant and more to do with the liberal hints and foreshadowing that's done in the film. Plus the fact that it's not exactly subtle about what's happening for the most part. You get shown a lot of things I was surprised that they showed as early as they did. But the reason I, I didn't know what the twist really was, was the fact that I assumed, once I, f- I, I thought I figured it out, that what I thought might be going on would just be too ludicrous, goony, and insane to actually do in a movie and pull it off. And I was wrong. Malignant is, unlike Juan's other hits, The Conjuring, Saw, Insidious, and Aquaman. (laughs) Uh, It's utterly batshit insane. And I I say that with a certain degree of respect and admiration. It's not a masterpiece by any stretch. I have a lot of problems with it. I'll get to in a sec. But you know how I was just talking about how Head of the Family... Didn't go bonkers enough that it it lacked uh, that spark that creative madness to push boundaries and the balls to stick with it malignant has those balls and they are huge and shiny indeed uh, we knew that Juan was very creative that he was technically ingenious and a- artistically sound from his other hits but I've never seen him go this far out on a limb conceptually or for that matter, thematically. He uses his skills at horror and action both in this film, which makes it kind of neither one and also a bit of both. Malignant is never really scary per se, but it does get quite gross at times. And at other times, it has action scenes, one in particular in a police station, that modern kung fu films and comic book movies would both salivate over. But... It's not really that deep of a movie. As I said, I I put it together fairly quickly, and as a result, I was waiting for a while for things to really kick off. And for most of its runtime, Malignant plays a bit more like a giallo or slasher film, And, and Juan even actually said he wanted to pay homage to Argento's Tenebrae, Phenomena, and Trauma, all classic giallo films. So we follow... Madison Lake Mitchell, who's a woman who had a traumatic upbringing that you can't quite recall before being adopted into a lovely family. She is in a shitty marriage in which she's had several miscarriages and she's been isolated from her loving adopted mom and sister by her asshole husband who has (laughs) one of the most spit take inducing lines early in this film, which uh, if you don't want him dead before this line, you will after. And uh, you're in luck, actually, because after a physical altercation with her, he ends up dead. She ends up not pregnant again. And then a series of doctors who have a shared past with her start ending up violently murdered, all of which she has visions of as they occur. She has some sort of psychic connection to this killer. But why and why does the killer move so strangely? And why did one of the doctors, who we see at the beginning of the film, declare melodramatically into the camera that it was time to cut out the tumor? Uh, Melodrama is the name of the game in Malignant. The main actresses are, they're blandly attractive in that cookie cutter Hollywood way like Stepford clones for, quote, attractive female lead that you would see in a casting notice. And neither is really a terrible actress per se, but then again, the material they're working with is pretty on-the-nose stuff they're not really aided by an overdone score and weather that reflects the mood a bit too ridiculously much uh (laughs) a bit of a a dumb aside but according to my research which involves having lived in the pacific northwest it rarely ever thunderstorms up there uh the, the, the type of weather patterns just don't allow it to happen in fact uh i i think seattle where the movie takes place averages about seven thunderstorms a year if that and the rain doesn't really downpour in these big fat dramatic horror movie drops it just kind of falls and mists and seeps into your soul like a virus not in malignant i think in this movie we get all seven of those yearly thunderstorms in one hour and 45 minute go and there's rain on the dark and stormy nights here, the kind of which would have me building an ark and grabbing pairs of animals. Uh, I mean, we've got some Son of Frankenstein weather here. And in front of this overdone weather, these ladies have to deliver these tightly wound lines that sound about as genuine as your average Days of Our Lives episode. But then again, that's also kind of the Giallo influence being more about style than realism or substance. And at the end of the day... It does create that heightened mood, even if it does sacrifice believability or real emotional connection. So the two cops that are on Madison's case are a bit better with uh, Nicole Brianna White, for example, being particularly sharp as a detective who gives a very few shits and has no problem saying so. But they're all surrounded by Juan's wildly oversaturated lights incredibly dramatic camera moves and tricks and a pervasive sense that style, as I said, matters here more than substance. So it's lucky then that the style, for most part, is pretty wicked. The murders of the doctors are drawn out and lurid and and with with the kind of operatic gusto that would have been right at home in a Fulci or Baba movie. And Juan uses all sorts of innovative ways to set up scenes and set pieces, most of which appear to use some of the most modern special effects possible as there's really no way to have done some of these tricks in camera. I mean, Robert Zemeckis himself would be proud of some of these. And if not him, then David Fincher or uh, Steven Spielberg would also probably nod approval if they weren't busy taking notes. And And there's actually one particular shot that reminded me of a trick Spielberg himself used in Minority Report, letting the camera follow from room to room in a completely top-down manner impossibly following a character while setting up a layout of the space. And actually Fincher did something similar in Panic Room as well. But this over-attention to detail backfires at some points too. For for example, uh, before watching this movie, I never knew that the Seattle Underground was more overset dressed than the bowels of Alcatraz in Michael Bay's The Rock. What is all this stuff still doing down here? And uh, the Killer's Lair, for example, is also like a Clutterbug's wet dream. And when you when you actually when you find out where it actually is, it makes even less sense why it looks the way that it does. Although the reveal is certainly eye-popping and kicks off the stretch of the film, where we go from s- things being somewhat shallow and tedious to just being utterly fucking bonkers. And that bonkerishness saved this movie for me from this overstylization and hamminess. And in fact, it actually made it all come together like adding like a hot sauce to a gumbo. And I was kind of losing interest beyond simple curiosity as to where they were actually going and how they were going to pull off any sort of satisfying conclusion. And to be fair, while I can't say that the third act will be satisfying for everyone, in fact, I can guarantee it will not be it's going to alienate some people who just cannot go along for the ride it's gonna piss off some people some people are just gonna check out as soon as it goes down i can say that it had me cackling and bouncing on my couch for about 20 minutes straight and it's a shame that the movie ultimately decides on a false sentimentality and a, a pat rushed ending but i suppose even that kind of mimics that Jallo style uh and by the time you get there you will still be coming down from the rush of the third act, whether you are furiously face-palming at how ridiculous things got, or if you were like me and you were laughing at the sheer brashness of it all. And I, 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 I criticized Barbarian, for example, for running out of ideas and not having a fifth gear to clock into in the last 20 minutes. And Malignant absolutely has a fifth gear, if not a can of nitrous, That sends the movie into a blazing Overdrive however If there's one thing that could have Made malignant far superior it's If it had at any time Clued us into If it's in on the joke I I like to think that it is That James Wan intentionally Turned the dial to 11 on the Crazy meter and then backed it up Over and over again because He knew how Fucking insane he was being and Wanted us to come along for the ride But then there's some things that are played so deadpan serious or without a hint of irony. And I, I have to wonder, I think if, if malignant had basked a little bit more in its own cartoonish madness, if it had just winked a a bit more, or if the actors had seemed more aware that they should be playing up the camp or the melodrama even more, I think more people would have enjoyed this movie. Um, there's a bit. I know I've mentioned him a lot this episode, but there's, there's a bit of Hennenlotter in Malignant. And I mean that in the best way. But where his movies, you always knew that they knew that they were ridiculous nonsense. I never got that feeling of self-awareness from Malignant. But even so, if James Wan just happened to make a movie that goes this far off the deep end completely earnestly, then at least I can say it's an entertaining trip into big, bald, cinematic lunacy. So taking a hard turn from the cartoonish madness and malignant up next, I watched a movie called Dark Waters from 1990. It's kind of it, there's a debate online of when it came out. Nineteen ninety two, three, four, somewhere around there. I'm going to say nineteen ninety three. Uh, it's out on shutter right now. And it is a very solemnly serious and relentlessly dark film that I'm actually kind of surprised isn't more well-known. It was shot in the Ukraine in the early 90s in the midst of some social upheaval as Ukraine at the time was trying to split from the USSR. But as a result, the production was able to get cheap labor, cheaper sets and locations. And as a result, it not only punches above its weight class in terms of atmosphere and visuals, But it also has the feeling that you're truly in a distant, inhospitable land, which is the story of our heroine, Elizabeth, played by Louise Salter, who is also kind of surprisingly is only otherwise known as being a Parisian vampire in the film version of Interview with the Vampire. So Elizabeth is off to see her friend at an island-bound convent on the left-ass cheek of nowhere after her father passes away. Uh, who, and by the way, he warned her not to visit this island. So, naturally, this wouldn't be a horror movie if our protagonists made smart decisions. So, City Girl is off to rural medieval nunnery and lots of pleasant adventures. Well, obviously, no, this isn't that kind of movie. And we know this because it opens with what seems like cataclysmic events taking place on the island with lots of water blowing up a church and a stiff breeze, throwing a nun off a cliff while she's holding on to an odd talisman with a horrific face on it. And the pieces of this talisman are being found by Elizabeth's friend, who's at the nunnery, when that friend is stabbed to utter shit by a shadowy figure just days before Elizabeth arrives. And, of course, naturally, once she's there, Elizabeth finds all kinds of horrible secrets and sinister machinations at play behind the convent's placid exterior. So, while this movie definitely counts as folk horror, what with the setup of a cultured city girl walking blithely into an isolated religious sect and all of the hidden horrors that they are involved in, it's actually also kind of an unsung Lovecraftian gem. Without without spoiling anything too much, the talisman and the horrible face on it is your first clue, and by the end, It's very much like an adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft novella with how things play out, with madness, grotesque physical deformities, and old gods all factoring in. In fact, I was actually very pleasantly surprised at how the film handles all this. It's never going to win any awards for its special effects, but the mood, the atmosphere, and the cinematography are all exceptional, if a bit dated and very much in line with an Italian horror aesthetic, and this is because it is of the line of Italian horror as it's directed by a man named Mariano Baino, who evokes the best of Fulcian Argento here, even down to the overdone Foley and the questionable editing. (laughs) I mean, I shouldn't criticize the technical aspects too much, as I know they were working under some rough conditions in editing and dubbing while gunfire was going on due to a coup at the time, but it does feel like what it is. A European horror production, which is very much of its time and lineage. But as a fan of that style, that made this film feel to me like a lost 70s horror classic. And even if it's missing the profound gore effects you'd expect from the auteurs of that scene, like Bava, it's, it still holds up. But um, Now, there are some grisly moments, but for the most part, the film is more of a dreamlike descent into madness. And the visuals and sound really ramp this up. The dreamy aspect of it covers a lot of its flaws, as the plot itself is a giant hole of illogical actions and motivations, where once you realize what's going on, the behavior of most of the cast becomes wildly unlikely. There's no reason these people should be doing the things that they're doing, if they know what they know. You'll, You'll see what I mean. There's, this, there's kind of a hollowness to the film's purpose and intent by the time you reach the end. But this could be taken as creating a sense of implacable doom or of a destiny that cannot be denied. Um, kind of like Suspiria or uh, Fulci's The Beyond, it's really less about what's actually happening and more about how you feel. And this film is very successful at making you feel constantly uncomfortable unsettled and squirmy and as things start to unravel more and more for elizabeth you find yourself unraveling with her the oppressive atmosphere of the island and its inhabitants weighing on you like a stifling room of hot air and the sound effects and music they push in on you like the enclosing walls of a tiny convent room so oftentimes in folk horror you see that by engaging with the primal natural or the the hidden secrets of a smaller community, the conventional avatar of society, as portrayed by the protagonist, rejects the brutal or uncivilized actions and beliefs that they are thrust into. Uh, And other times, like in Dark Waters, the protagonist, Elizabeth here, finds that those secrets and the haunted pasts are actually revelations to their own identity, showing us that no matter how far we run from these darker truths, we will always be drawn back into their orbit. And Dark Waters is a folk horror movie about losing yourself in the darkness of the lost primeval and how that was always going to be your fate no matter how societalized, to coin a phrase, that you think you are. And while it's not really going to connect with everyone who watches it due to its stylization or its tone or its lack of logic, and in some ways its austere lack of real humanity among all of the atmosphere dark waters is i think a very solid mood piece with a lot of scary nuns uh some wildly dark and stormy nights love those this craggy fascinating eastern european uh location and the faces and there's just and the lots and lots and lots of water Uh, i do recommend dark waters it's 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 a very cool movie if you go into it kind of knowing it's not going to be a big-budget Western horror film. It is definitely its own thing, but I think it's really solid. Up next, I had, uh, I had to find some movies from the 2000s. It's always a tough time. Uh, from 2005, I looked up House of Wax. And, you know, a lot of people think that horror only sucked in the 90s. <laughs> that there was a, a, a finite period from like 92 to 99 where it was all new metal and mainstream pg-13 horror and self-awareness and shitty cgi and handheld dv cameras and ridiculously obnoxious teen heartthrobs getting killed by postmodern slashers and, and in silly but creative ways and sadly i'm here to remind you that that period actually went on a lot longer Until at least the late aughts and maybe even the early teens. And and I've actually brought House of Wax here to be my star witness. This fucking movie. Okay, so House of Wax is everything wrong with the horror films of this time. It's aimless. It's obnoxious. It's illogical. It's filled with stupid, stupid decision-making by its characters. And worse characterizations of those characters. And of course... A soundtrack featuring Marilyn Manson and Disturbed. Uh, it stands out as a glowing reason why classics shouldn't be remade by Hollywood executives looking for a payday. And this is actually in an era where there were a number of successful remakes. The, um, the very first Platinum Dunes Texas Chainsaw and its sequel were actually surprisingly good. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes remake was superlative, was exceptional. Uh, Dawn of the Dead kicked it all off even though it was much more of a remake in name only Uh, all the J-horror American remakes at the time including ones that were better than their originals like the American version of The Ring so you know, in some ways I guess I can't blame them for wanting to capitalize on and remake House of Wax and it is an interesting premise, somebody obsessed with wax sculptures starts making them using real people as subjects, covering them in wax while they're still alive Wax sculptures can be creepy by nature, so that the idea that they might be real people is an idea that has legs. I mean, the 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 1953 original, the wonderful original, starring, Vince, starring Vincent Price, motherfucker, was even selected by the National Film Registry for preservation for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now, there's there's a lot to work with in the original as well. It plays like a murder mystery with Price as the evil mastermind. Though, arguably, it is a little too simplistic and one-dimensional for modern audiences. But sadly, the answer that the 2005 production came up with was to turn the proceedings into something more closely resembling a, a convoluted Texas Chainsaw Massacre, complete with a deformed redneck family and a sinister small town. Uh, and sure enough, our intrepid college dog teens or 20-somethings or whatever, on their way to watch a big football game stumble into this mess, and sure enough, they get picked off one-by-one, slasher-style, with the only redeeming factor to the proceedings being the somewhat unpredictable net timing of their respective demises. And of course, they are populated by the popular teen beat actors of the day, with perennial TV hunk Chad Michael Murray as the cliché bad boy, who's not really that bad. Uh, you have Alicia Cuthbert as his wholesome, pultritudinous sister, And you have uh, her dopey boyfriend, played by Supernatural's Jared Padalecki, just for the ladies to think that Chad Murray and his abs are too intimidating. Uh, And then, of course, there's also Paris goddamn Hilton as the girlfriend of another of their buddies, the token black guy played by Robert Richard, who I am sad to say here is used about as well as most black actors in horror movies across the years. He does some raps, he plays some sports, and then he dies like a bitch without even a chase scene. And Paris, it's, it's sad. Paris, who at the time was a celebrity for being rich and an idiot, if you're too young to recall. She was basically the proto-Kim Kardashian. So thanks to everyone who made that a thing. Well, she's here just to dance around in her underwear and then die as well. And here's a report from the front lines. Watching Paris Hilton dance around in brawn panties trying to be sexy is like watching a shaved mongoose doing burlesque. So at the time of its release... There was even a promotional campaign for the movie that was simply, quote, watch Paris die, which should tell you a lot about how they had faith in the content of the film itself, that they resorted to encouraging people to come watch a reality celebrity getting killed as opposed to promoting anything about the film that had to do with its actual content. So that but you know what? That being said, to Paris's credit, She's not really asked to do anything here that most other incompetent pretty actresses aren't asked to do in horror movies, and she does it about as well as anyone else has. I can't even really complain about her. If no one knew who she was outside of this film, she would actually fit right in. Another hollow, useless pretty character to scream and then get mulched by the deformed, hulking bad guy with a knife. But that death doesn't even come until the back third of the film. After a plotting. Red herring-filled first half, which could have been cut down by a good half an hour. And ironically, after making us sit with these cardboard cutouts in the shape of humans for about an hour, the film doffs most of, it, most of them off in about a clean 15 minutes, which makes me wonder why the fuck I had to sit all through all this time with them doing dumb things for so damn long. I, I, I swear, the kids in this movie, I know it's a cliche in horror movies, But the kids in this movie, even by horror movie standards, suffer from a brutally clinical case of stop being stupiditis and don't touch that osis. And later, we even run into a terminal case of make sure he's dead, you morons, iasis." Jared Padalecki's character has never met a closed door or room or building that he wasn't supposed to be in that he didn't just love to run inside of and fuck with all the things he's not supposed to touch. I mean, there's the cliché or, or or joke or whatever about horror movies where you're, you're, you're screaming at the screen, don't go in that room. Well, this movie took that cliché and assumed it was actually like a good structure to build a whole second act around. It's just, it's face-palmingly bad. And the worst part is, he he does all of this. All of these things, he, he goes to all these rooms, all of these things, nothing really happens. So by the time he it does happen to him, we're not really built up to a fever pitch of tension as we should be. We're just relieved that something is finally fucking happening. So, <sighs> I, I'm going to be nice here for a second. The, the fire-filled explosive finale is actually pretty exciting, if completely ludicrous. The revenge that Alicia Cuthbert, Cuthbert's character takes on a bad guy in the climax is also pretty damn satisfying, seeing as there's actually a scene between the two of them earlier, that harkens to some of the French new extremism movement that was happening at the time, and that scene is actually probably one of the best horror moments of the movie, as is her gut-wrenching revenge at the end. But what pissed me off about House of Wax is it's competently made, for the most part. Director uh, May Collette serra is actually a solid director, known since for The Shallows, uh, a few Liam Neeson-by-the-numbers action films, and the upcoming Black Adam movie with Dwayne Johnson. And I mean, I mentioned... The red herrings in the first half, well, some of them do have a genuine tension, at least until you've had a few too many and the boy crying wolf effect has numbed you into not caring. There was the possibility of a better movie is my point. It's not total shit from front to back. It's just got too much shit to be a good movie. There's just too much that's dumb and stretched out and overdone and unlikable to bear in this film, which it's, it's kind of a damn pity. But then again... As I said before, it was a bad stretch for mainstream horror movies around this time, and House of Wax is a prime example of everything that was done wrong by the filmmakers and producers of horror in this era. So, finally, this week, we come to my 21st movie of the horror marathon Halloween Ends. Just came out this year, 2022, and this was a tough one to write. <laughs> So uh, I'll start with something else, and that is what makes a good Halloween movie? And by that, I mean what movies in the stop-start Halloween franchise are considered the good ones, and why? Uh, 1 and 2, obviously, most people would rate them the highest, I think. Uh, 3 is an outlier, obviously, a a failed experiment at creating an anthology series that I I wish they'd been able to pull off, especially since three's bizarre gooniness has come around to be appreciated all these years later had it just been called like the silver shamrock murders or masks of death or something it might have found an audience at the time but people wanted their michael myers and so back he came with return of michael myers revenge of michael myers and curse of michael myers three movies that aren't great but i think they get more hate than maybe they deserve the biggest Valid reason being the bonkers twist that Michael is, in fact, supernatural and gets his evil from some sort of druidic power called thorn. (laughs) If you buy that, you'll find these movies to be decent, middle-of-the-road slashers. If you don't, you'll totally reject them and hate them. And they are hated, I think, more than they're loved. But then, there's the first reboot of the series, you could say, Halloween H2O, and Halloween Resurrection, which bring back Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, only to have her think she kills Michael at the end of one and then she gets unceremoniously killed by him herself in Resurrection, a moment that pretty much kills any goodwill the rest of that crap movie could have had. And those two are considered pretty bad, but not as bad as the second movie in the Robbie Zombie remake duology, which most fans I believe to be the biggest train wreck in a franchise, in the franchise, with some other strong contenders. So, look, to Zombies' credit, his first movie, remaking and expanding on the original Halloween, has some really good stuff in it. Some great horror and tension and slasher-style kills and visuals. But you've got to get through the inevitable scenes with his damn wife and all of the backstory about Michael as a mopey, round-faced, white trash kid with all the serial killer red flags. And then, of course, as I mentioned, you have Zombies' sequel, complete with, once again, Zombies' wife on a goddamn white horse and, and Michael that looks more like Rob Zombie himself than the Michael most people were used to, and that just killed the new series dead. Before, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, two guys known more for Pineapple Express and, and Eastbound and Down, respectively, comedy, comedy guys, they got a hold of the studio purse strings and decided to do a much different take. They made Halloween 2018, or now retroactively nicknamed Halloween Returns, which would have been a way better name seeing as they made the series now start after the events of the first Halloween, erasing Halloween 2 and everything else that happened before. And their first movie ranks up there with the best of the series. It's brutal, fun, irreverent at times, but not to the point of ruining the overall tone. It feels like a classic slasher film, and it updates the characters in interesting believable ways for the most part it however removes the subplot of lori being michael's sister and it's a twist that michael's rampages are not focused on her it's just chance that they keep crossing paths and this omission and the wacky idea of michael's doctor working together with him were major missteps making lori and michael's relationship more of a matter of causality like someone who lives in Florida getting hit with multiple bad hurricanes and wondering why they keep losing their house and being mad at the weather. But regardless of that blunder, it's still a solid horror film and a solid Halloween film. But then Green and McBride and company unleashed Halloween Kills, which I reviewed last year and I held myself a bit in check on it because I, I wanted to trash it. But it's bloviating, it's redundant, it's overstuffed with lame characters and heavy-handed social commentary. Um, Kills had a lot of great moments, it had a lot of great ideas, including revisiting the idea of a lynch mob from Halloween 5. But it instead devolved into an unfocused, totally inconsistent mess, with Michael reforged as less of a shape in the night and more of the fucking Terminator taking out dozens of townsfolk and firefighters like an NFL linebacker running through a bunch of Pop Warner kids. It just felt wrong. And while there were some great, gory, slashery moments in the movie, some really cool stuff, overall, it was a giant misfire. So, when they decided to finish their trilogy with Halloween Ends, they had, at this point, a patchwork quilt of a franchise behind them. The first two are Deserved Classics... 3 is A redheaded Stepchild. 4, 5, and 6 take the franchise in the wrong direction. And 7 and 8 are misguided attempts at restarting an ailing franchise. Rob Zombie's reboots are hit and wildly miss. And then Green and McBride come into it. And then they're at 1 and 1. But why are the bad ones bad and the good ones good? Well, by and large, they're all classic slasher films, which is a subgenre and trope, That has seen years of being the biggest, most successful style of horror film. And then, after being deconstructed in the 90s, decades of being predictable, bland, and boring. And the best of the Halloween movies didn't reinvent the wheel, but instead found interesting new ways to make it spin. Either through using modern techniques to make the action more exciting, or by playing around with our expectations of the tropes of the genre. Making surprises and kills happen when we least expect it, or in ways that we don't see coming. But... They don't stray too far from what brought them to the table and what the first movie codified for a generation of horror filmmakers. There's a scary man whose face we never get a good look at. He wears a mask and he hides in the darkness or in the background. Literally a shape. And he's coming to kill you when you least expect it. And there's nothing you can do to stop him. So there's also in the Halloween movies at their best an undercurrent of social nihilism, a belief that that this shape in the form of a man is an embodiment of the evil that lives in the darkest corners of the hearts of humanity. He is an avatar of our sins, if you will, uh, 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 our brutal animalistic past, and a literal symbol of death that can take us at any time, uh, and how sudden and brutal that can be. But in the best of the series, this more intellectual take is expounded on by whatever medical professional or learned scholar that comes into contact with Michael. Dr. Loomis has many verbose speeches to this effect, and in the best instances, they are simple, eloquent, chilling, and most importantly, overdramatic enough that the listeners in the film, the characters that listen to him, and by some extent us, the viewer, take it as possibly being hyperbole, but with a kernel of truth. And that distinguishing line, that uncertainty, is what makes the best films of the franchise work. Is Michael truly supernatural, or is he a man? Either, either way, what makes a person that evil and violent? Not answering those questions, but simply posing them, is actually a strength of these films. And the worst films in the series are the ones that make sweeping, grandiose statements about the nature of violence and what evil is and they make it clear that michael is a supernatural evil spreading unkillable monster much like taking away his fixation with his family removing the mystery and the quiet intrigue from michael's nature takes away a lot of the power of these movies to get under our skin and this is not even discussing making the film around that entertaining and scary We've seen over and over again in this franchise that straying too far from the basic premise stretches and ruins it because big ideas in this series far too easily overpower the simplicity and coldness of Carpenter's original. The Jamie Lloyd trilogy of 4, 5, and 6, they tried too hard to infuse supernatural elements. Rob Zombie thought pretentious hallucinations would work, and Gordon Green and McBride Thought by, by, by repeating Evil Dies Tonight 18 billion times and smacking us upside the face with a pop psychology diatribe about how violence spreads in society, they were somehow elevating the concept of the Halloween film. And that brings us to Halloween Ends. Uh, and this is my second or maybe even third attempt at, at <laughs> creating like a talking piece about this film. Because I, I, I wrote a whole long piece right after watching the movie that would probably sound like 30 minutes of me just ranting about all of the ways this film fails as a Halloween film, as a sequel, and as a capstone to the characters in this trilogy. And and then also just even as a movie. And maybe that diatribe will one day see the light of day, but I, I realized that me running this film down for half an hour <laughs> isn't really a positive or constructive or interesting addition to this show. And plus, I mean look a lot of people did work hard on this film and despite its many shortcomings on a technical level on a creative front and even arguably as a piece of entertainment it really does no good for me to blather on about all the ridiculous contrived wrong-headed decisions made on this film and look at the end of the day I'm not a working filmmaker I've worked in the industry I've, I've been on both sides of the camera at one point or another and I have a knowledge of what it takes to make a movie but Sitting here, I'm just another guy with a microphone screaming into the void. I'm not a professional critic. I'm not a a horror movie historian, none of that. I only have my opinion and and my words and my several decades worth of lived experience. And what I also have is a long history of consuming these kinds of media, films, horror films, and, and more importantly, stories. And the biggest, most painfully obvious problem with Halloween Ends is its story. And in my, in my original rant that I wrote, I went into details and spoilers about all the ways this film sets up and fails its characters. I chewed over how the filmmakers thought that the best idea they could have for closing out their trilogy, their way of summing up their thesis, was to bring back one of the most reviled concepts in the history of the franchise, that Michael's evil was somehow communicable and transferable and not in a subtle creeping slow burning kind of way it ends he can literally grab you and you look into his dead black shark like eyes and then you come away changed and Green and McBride have been playing with this concept in all three of their films in 2018 or Returns or whatever uh, Michael had corrupted his doctor in the dumbest twist in that film in kills Michael's evil made the whole town bloodthirsty and crazed and here it ends at its, it's at its most explicit and banal uh had they made this like a a Stephen King monster like like Pennywise in It or Leland Gaunt in Needful Things or Kurt Barlow in Salem's Lot where their mere presence quantifiably alters the populace and the town itself and makes them evil or changed or wrong or bad uh it, it, then not only would it have made more sense, but it would have also tripped into that area that I've already discussed, where they would be positing that Michael is supernatural. It would have made for a clearer and perhaps more fathomable reason for all the plot contrivances that the filmmakers try to shoehorn into the story, but it would also have tripped into that other area that always seems to fall flat, the making of Michael explicitly supernatural. But instead we get events and developments that make little sense. We find we can't empathize or understand the choices and evolutions of certain characters, and they come off as arbitrary and unearned. And ultimately, and perhaps the biggest misstep of the movie, the character they spend the most time on and who goes on the biggest and yet most unconvincing journey in the film is tossed aside and discarded in an incredibly unceremonious and unsatisfying way before they go back to a simple Michael versus Laurie climax that is out of nowhere, unearned and by this point undercut by their own assertion that the two of them have no real relationship other than a shared history of random encounters and by their attempt to show that Laurie is now a survivor and not a victim. It's This theme is one that they touch on unsuccessfully throughout the movie, the survivor versus victim uh, And and sometimes it's heavy handed sometimes it's too vague and sometimes it's too obtuse and ultimately the most off-putting thing i found about ends is that sense of pseudo-intellectual self-satisfaction this feeling that they're working with these big ideas but without the actual brain power to pull off any of them or even as a even pull off a coherent narrative there's this feeling of smug arrogant amusement when lori pops up and says to the camera you don't think i'd really kill myself do you there's a sense of entitled self-congratulation when they Attack on a ludicrously staged town-encompassing procession at the end, which doesn't feel like a proper send-off, but more like a blunt story device that makes a deus ex machina look subtle. And, and, and look, in, my, in, that, in that previous scrapped rant, I used a, thes- a thesaurus to come up with several synonyms for the word incompetent. But at the end of the day, I don't think they're really truly bad or incompetent filmmakers. They're just not good ones. There's moments here of decent content. The, the acting is quite good across the board, even if the script often sounds like it was written by a room full of AIs that were imitating how apes would write how humans speak. The, the cinematography is almost too good sometimes, even though they often just have shots for the sake of shots, and the editing kills the narrative flow of several scenes. And the first half, which many have criticized for its pace and lack of Michael Myers, I actually thought was an interesting character study and had the possibility of being a fresh take before it jumps several sharks as the film progresses. So, <laughs> so here I am again. Once again, I've written a long unhappy rant about this movie, and I'm look. It's because I'm sorely disappointed, but not unfortunately surprised. And I, I really, I really tried to make this version of me talking about it a lot less vitriolic than my first draft, but. Look, ultimately, I get it. Making a good Halloween movie is very hard. There's not a lot of them, and very few of them are really all that good front to back. So I do have to temper my disappointment with the knowledge that these guys did try very hard to do something different, but ultimately tried too many things that failed before and that failed again. And they also tripped over their own feet in the final act, making Too many ridiculous choices and unsatisfying outcomes. Not executing on the few somewhat promising premises that they had. And also just trying to be a little bit trying to do too much for what they were capable of doing. So what makes a good Halloween film? That's far harder to define than what makes a bad one. And maybe that's why there's so many bad ones. And so few good ones. I mean, do I think I could do better? I don't know. But I do know There's a lot of pitfalls here in Halloween ends that are just inexcusable. Not just in a Michael Myers film, but in a film in general. And while I want to give these filmmakers some rope here, I mean, they seem like happy enough, decent guys. They're actual fans of Halloween, the series, and of horror overall. I really can't ultimately excuse all the missteps and mistakes they've made with this film and with their Halloween trilogy. So... At this point, I don't know if we ever need another Halloween movie. I, I wonder if the concept, the world, the characters are just too worn out or too overdone, or if this movie just took the joy of it all out of me. Uh, what I do know is that Jamie Lee Curtis is supposedly done after this film, and maybe that's for the best. Uh, but one thing I do know is that me personally, I'm I'm sadly I'm done with Michael Myers for a while, at least in terms of new movies. It's over. I'm I'm good. Halloween Ends has indeed ended it for me, at least for now, and not, I think, in the way it probably intended. But uh, thank goodness there are still some good Halloween movies that exist uh, that I can go back and forth to and watch and enjoy, and they can try to help me forget Halloween Ends. (laughs) So after all is said and done, there it is. Here I am with 21 movies down, 10 more to go. It's going to be a huge blowout episode next week, summing up all the rest of the films that I'm going to watch, so stay tuned. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a tight one. I've got three more folk horror films to find and watch and discuss, and the three decades they have to be from are the 2000s, the teens, and the 2020s. So they'll actually they'll all be modern, and we will track the rise of folk horror as being one of the most popular sub- subgenres of today. Uh, In addition, let's see, I need another film from the 80s and one from the 50s. Okay, the 80s shouldn't be a problem, as that's one of the best decades for horror. But the 50s is going to be a bigger issue, as there was such a collapse of the horror industry in post-war America. um, Although there was certainly a glut of shoddy sci-fi B-movies, and we went from monsters to mad scientists and atomic energy being the bad guys. So it'll be interesting trying to find one there. Uh, plus, I want to try and sneak in some more new releases like Smile and Terrifier 2. So, hopefully, I can fit it all in. I guess we will all find out next week. So, thank you all for joining me. Please like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Follow me on Twitter at Skinless Wonder, Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Check out tiki creeps.com, 414 beg on Instagram. And we will see you next week right here on. Mm-hmm.